Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 104. We have had a season in the Psalms this summer. And as I was looking at Psalm 104 this week, I realized it is so full that I can't do it in one Sunday. So we're going to spend two weeks here in Psalm 104. This week, we will be focusing in on the first 23 verses. And next week, we'll take the remainder of the psalm. But this morning, we will go ahead and read the whole psalm, knowing that we will focus on verses 1 through 23. Even a psalm as poetic and beautiful and abundant in praise as this lands on hard hearts without the Spirit's work. So let's pray that we would, by the Spirit, praise along with the psalmist this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our need. You know that as we come, we are entirely dependent on you to give us life. Would you do that by Psalm 104 this morning? Would your spirit be working in the words of my mouth and in the meditations of our hearts? Would this all be acceptable in your sight? O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Once upon a time, there was a man. He was young and healthy and happy. On his wedding day, he was excited for the uh, adventure of life with his wife. They traveled the world and collected a bank of memories to last a lifetime. Eventually, they settled down and the man took a job in the office. His wife, at home taking care of their children, became a cook like the finest chefs of the world. But the one thing that the man liked most of all her cooking was her chocolate chip cookie. She had no lack of generosity and kept the house stocked with her husband's favorite treat. He would have one for breakfast, take one for lunch, and looked forward to getting home for another one after work. After years of this routine, the wife noticed something had changed. In many senses, he used to come home, greet her and the kids with a kiss and a smile and hugs, but no more. She would give him a cookie and he would, he used to gush with thanks and praise to her. But now when he arrives home, there's no smile, no kiss, no hugs. He heads directly to the kitchen for his cookie. And you can tell by looking at him, he's had a few too many. He can't restrain himself. But worst of all, he never says thank you. He cares more for the cookie than for the cook. He's forgotten who makes them. By way of application, you and I do the same thing with God. Our good God has given us wonderful gifts. And we become so consumed and obsessed with them that we forget the giver of the gifts. We worship the creation rather than the creator. This psalm that we're about to read teaches us how to observe the acts of God in creation And to use them properly, not to lose sight of the one who has given us all good things. We learn that there are so many varieties of blessings in this world, and they're not here to bless our souls, but to bless the Lord, O my soul. So let's read this psalm of praise from Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out 
the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing from among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun to know it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Oh, Lord, how manifold are your works In wisdom. Have you made them all? The earth is full of your creatures. Here's the sea, the great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This ends the reading of this portion of God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You see in this psalm that the psalmist is consumed with giving praise to God by way of his creation. We're going to look at how he does this in four parts today. First, we look at how God is light. God is light, and then God makes a place for life. And then God gives life, and then God upholds life. God is light, God makes a place for life, God gives life, and God upholds life. First, we look at the fact that God is light, and this comes from the first four verses. 
This is parallel to Genesis, the first two days of creation. You may have noticed a theme. He's going back to the Genesis 1 account and and following the days of creation in a loose sense. As we look at the fact that God is light, the psalmist is overwhelmed with the beauty of God, probably after observation of the natural world, along with his meditation on the truth of those first chapters of Genesis. And here in verses 1 through 4, we see days 1 and 2 of creation. He opens with an exclamation of praise. His focus is on God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. His focus is upon the creator. This is about the creator's glory. This is about blessing his name. He is very great. And in a technical literary way, looking at Hebrew poetry, this is a call to worship. This is a call on his soul to give to God the praise that is due. And the rest of the psalm is the outworking of that. It's worship, blessing God's name, giving him the praise. So if this were a thesis, the rest of the psalm is a compilation of the supporting arguments. God is very great. Creation is dependent upon him. That relationship cannot be confused. God is worthy to be blessed. And it is the job of creation to do exactly that. If you spent time in the Reformed world, you'll remember Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we're going to see both of those elements in this psalm today. Let's look first at the glory of God, his splendor and majesty, as it's said here in these verses, verses one and two, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. This is a poetic metaphorical way to speak of God. God doesn't have a body to put a garment on because he is spirit, infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. But he wears light covering himself with light, and in him is no darkness at all, as we know from 1 John 1. And as God who wears light enters into darkness, darkness flees because the light of God overpowers the enemy. Wickedness scatters. And light is also that first day of creation. God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. As God's voice, as God's word hit that darkness, that chaos, the the waters that were there where his spirit was hovering over them, out came light, radiant and powerful over that chaos and darkness. God's presence is light. And we look forward to that on that last day as Revelation 21, verse 23 anticipates. It speaks of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. And it says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of, the, of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. We have the New Testament to help us look back at this psalm and to see that this light of which the psalmist speaks is God the Father, and it is God the Son, the Lamb. Because Jesus Christ is that light that shone into the darkness of the world. He is the light of the world. And so all the ways that this psalm gives praise to God, it can be truly given to Jesus as well. Jesus is the word that was with God and that was God in the beginning. He is the creator. He shares the splendor and the majesty of God. He is worthy to be blessed. 
He was that first light in the darkness, and he is the light of the world that shines into the darkness of evil. Even he shines into the darkness of the human heart and gives light and life to human hearts. And we see immediately the psalmist goes into talking about not just God as light, but where God dwells. And so day two gets into the heavens. And here we see in verses, uh, verse two, stretching out the heavens like a tent. This harkens back to the first chapter of Genesis, verses eight and nine of day two of creation, where God separated the waters from the waters and he put the expanse between them and the waters above mark off the sky or the heavens, the, the expanse below them and the waters then below the expanse are the deep. And whereas the other ancient Near Eastern peoples believed that their gods had to fight to the death to establish the heavens, And whereas some gods themselves were the watery mass that composed the heavens or the sea, they are in reality simply a tent, like God setting up a tent. He pitched it with ease. He alone is the God who created. And upon the upper waters, we're told in verse 3, God lays the beam of his chambers and he dwells above the heavens. It's beautiful language explaining the ruling power of the one true Yahweh. And if that dwelling weren't enough, what about those who serve him? Well, we find out in verse four, God makes his messengers or his angels. He makes them winds and his ministers a flaming fire. Those winds, those those flaming fires, those lightnings contribute to, to God's complete control. They come and go as he bids. And he commands many angels. And all this is to indicate God alone is the sole ruler, to praise him because there is no other God and there is no dwelling place for any other God. And there is no other God who commands the angels to come and go. God alone is God. And the surrounding nations think they have a storm God, but what does Yahweh do? He rides on the clouds and he's on the wings of the wind. Those gods have no power. There is no other God to be blessed. There is no other God with splendor and majesty. There is nothing else worthy of worship. And so we remember what this psalm is about. We will keep going back to that very first line. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the God of authority. The God of light. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And we can say with Paul in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. One glimpse of God leaves us in awe. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, the psalmist begins by setting a sight on God, but then there's a really interesting trajectory. From there, he looks down into the depths, as we've just mentioned. And then he slowly begins to lift his gaze again. And as he lifts his eyes from the depths of the ocean, he then sees the valleys, the streams and the valleys, and then the grass that grows from them, and then the plants, and then the trees, and then the mountains, and then the sun and the moon before he returns again to seeing God. And so what we see next is that the psalmist becomes in awe of how God has made a place for life. God is light, 
Now let's look at how God makes a place for life. God has drawn lines around the places where life will flourish. He's drawn lines to preserve it and to exile death beyond those lines that he draws. And the psalmist talks about that here. Just like the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, we remember that these waters, first mentioned in Genesis 1, are waters of chaos and they instilled fear of death into the ancient people as they really do for many of us as well. But it was woven into their theology, yet God effortlessly with his breath, with his spirit, subdued the rising of the waters from the very beginning pages of the Bible. And this psalm recalls that. It says in verse 7, God rebuked the waters in creation and they fled in verse 7. At your rebuke, they fled at the sound of your thunder. These deep waters of chaos and death, they took to flight. And this is reminiscent of day three of creation in Genesis 1-9, where it says, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God was drawing his line around the land to keep life there. This land is the place for life. This is where God would grow plants and establish animals and create mankind, where he would breathe his own breath into mankind. Yet that boundary that God had drawn to withhold the waters, you and I know, was movable because humankind in their grave sin rebelled against God and the only intentions of their heart were wicked. We know how sinful humanity became and how far Adam and his sons fell into sin and God in that time of Noah overwhelmed that place of life with those waters of death once again. And it was entirely just for the sins of mankind. Just like those waters of the Red Sea that God had split and put dry ground in the middle that Israel might find life in the midst of them, God let those waters come back together and to overwhelm the wicked Egyptians. This is God preserving. This is God punishing in judgment. So then with the flood, did God break his promise to preserve life? No. The lines in the flood were just a little bit tighter around that ark where Noah and his family were. God continued to preserve life for the world. And once those waters receded, God did promise with that rainbow in the sky, he promised, I will never again let these waters overwhelm the earth. And so this also seems to be what the psalmist is talking about, remembering not just creation, but in a sense that second creation after the flood, when it says in verse nine, you set a boundary that these waters may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. He's remembering God's promises. He's remembering who his God is as a creator and the sustainer. And every time you and I see that rainbow in the sky, it's a reminder of that promise that God will keep death away and he'll preserve his people. And so what do we do? Go back to that first line of the psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, for preserving life. Life is fragile and entirely dependent upon God. Judgment against sinful man is just and death is a due punishment for sin. And were it not for the God of promise, we would be subject to destruction already. 
You know, God set a boundary to, de- to designate a place of life, but he has also drawn a line to designate a place of eternal life. And this place of eternal life is for all those who are in Christ by faith. It's those who have been in Christ as Noah was in the ark in the flood, the one who preserves us from the overwhelming of death and of chaos and of those waters. Spiritual life for humans is not just fragile, but without Christ, it is shattered. Without God's intervention, we are dead. Our sin is real. Our judgment that we deserve, it is just. And the wages of our sin is death. And as God is the only God, so Christ is that only location where life can be found. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And that church that he has given us, this body of Christ is that place that God has blessed us with, representative of the roles of heaven and the names that are written in the book of life. Here is where we can find life and escape the chaos of the enemy and the world around us. Where we can escape that kingdom of darkness from which we have been transferred and we come here and we gather as the kingdom of light in Jesus. Here in this place in Jesus, we find life. It is in Jesus alone that God has chosen to give eternal life to all who believe. And it's in him that we live and move and have our being. So we also can once again with Paul say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Ephesians 3, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Bless the Lord, O my soul. God is light. God has set a place, given a place for life, and God gives life itself. We look at verses 10 through 18. God not only gives life and breath, but he gives it in abundance. And he gives life and breath in abundance beyond our comprehension. You see, in verses 10 through 13, he talks about the springs and the grass. He's looking at creation. And instead of worshiping creation, he is using it to worship his creator, These waters of death that we have talked about, God has now turned into waters of life. These are the springs from the deep that burst forth into the valley to give life, not to kill. The deeps burst burst forth to, they had burst forth to eradicate earthly life, but God now in his promise uses them to flow between the hills to give water to drink for the living creatures. I don't think we take enough time to thank God for giving water to drink for the living creatures and for ourselves. I'm one of those when Anjanette and I were um, dating, uh, we'd go for walks in the national park and I was excited to see how quick we could pace it. And she would slow me down and say, look at the pretty flowers. I don't give God thanks for those little things. I don't take the time to let those encourage my heart and see the beauty of the creator. But look what God has done. Every beast of the field, including the wild donkeys, as well as the birds of the heavens, which sing among the branches, all these are sustained by the waters that God has commanded to spring up, to give life waters that very easily could have brought death. 
And he sends water from heaven, from, from heaven above as well, not just the waters from the springs in verse 13. Now the psalmist is looking. We get water from below. We also get water from above. God, enthroned above the heavens from his lofty abode, sends rain down to the mountains. What a colliding of worlds for a mindset like our Western world. God, sitting in his lofty abode, is giving rain for the mountains. What a rapid condescension the psalmist makes, and that's only rapid to us because we have separated what God does from how nature works. We don't understand how you can talk about the heavenly lofty dwelling of the one true God of splendor and majesty, and then immediately talk about feeding donkeys. God is imminent. God is near. He is not the God of deism that remains far off. We have unhelpfully separated the natural from the supernatural in how we look at this world. Indeed, even the rain that falls from heaven is the direct result of God's gracious work. The fruit that is born in verse 13, where it says the earth is satisfied with the fruit of the rain. It's, It's called the fruit of your work. This is the work of creation and the work of sustenance that God continues to do as he upholds this, this world. And these natural processes that we call natural, they are supernaturally designed and guided and sustained, and they are supernaturally fruitful. But God doesn't just give life. He gives abundant life. Look at verses 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants, for man to cultivate that he may bring forth fruit, food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. He gives life, but he also gives life abundant, life that is to be enjoyed. Let's talk about these, these gifts in verse 15. First of all, wine to gladden the heart of man. Wine was a common drink in the ancient world. It was as much a part of Israel as is sweet tea to our southern friends or coffee to America as a whole. Wine was to be enjoyed. Ecclesiastes 9.7 also supports this. It talks about the call to enjoy wine. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. And in those days, it bound people together in unity and friendship. We get glimpses of that when we do it together. It was a part of festivals and celebrations to ease the tensions of the hard work in the agricultural setting. And it was often described as creating the effect of a merry heart. And even Jesus, he not only partook of the enjoyment of wine and the bond of wine with his disciples, but he also turned 120 gallons of water into wine and then commanded that we continue to partake of it as we do it in remembrance of him. Wine was ordinary. But wine also had great significance. It signified judgment. It signified peace. It signified prosperity. And such an ordinary element has come to mean so much to believers who share in the bond of Christ. Maybe your eyes have glanced down to the table as we talk about this. Because we share in the, the bond of Christ as we drink the wine together at the supper. And it signifies that judgment poured out on Jesus as his blood was poured out. And it signifies that peace that we have with God and the prosperity that he brings to his children. That abundant life that we find in the flowing streams of Christ's blood. And there's nothing else that can gladden the heart of man in such a way as the blood of Jesus Christ. And God gave oil 
to make man's face shine. Now, by our modern standards of what beauty is, this seems a little bit foreign, but oil was an indicator of wealth. A person was able to enjoy life, uh, who was able to enjoy life, was, was well-fed, uh, they wore white garments, and they had oil that keep, kept their head shining. We see that from Ecclesiastes 9. Job, also in his wealth, had streams of oil, and King Hezekiah showed off his wealth, including his precious oil. God himself is the provider of the land in which the olive tree grows. He's the provider of the water that gives it life, and he's the provider of the abundance that comes from it. God also gives bread to strengthen man's heart. I love bread. This one excites me. Along with wine, bread, and grain, these were staples of that ancient world and their diet. And so the commonality of it is why Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Even food and bread are to be enjoyed. Even these are to be used in the service of giving praise to the Lord, not just for the sake of the food itself. And Jesus, that bread of life, is the only one who will give us bread that will never make us hungry again. Jesus is the one with whom we fill ourselves and have our hearts truly strengthened. And verses 16, 17, and 18 go farther and they show not only does God provide for the animals right here, or the, our pastures, and not only does he provide these, this abundant life for man to enjoy this relationship with his God, but, but now look, verses 16, 17, and 18. These trees, these, these massive trees in Lebanon. Think of the sequoias in California. God sustains beyond our comprehension on a scale that we cannot wrap our minds around. The psalmist's eyes come to the heights here, staring after staring into the deep, looking at the valleys and the plants. Now he's looking up high, and these trees have built the most magnificent structures in human civilization. Think of the temple in Jerusalem. And these trees simply come from the hand of God. Man uses them and tries to make of them, make of their grandeur to build impressive structures. But to God... They're another of his creations where the birds have nests and he waters them. And then above those high, those high trees are the high mountains. And as a passing comment, the psalmist concludes this section with a comment about those creatures that dwell in the heights of the mountains. These are desert places, rocky places where humans would struggle to stay alive. A wilderness like we have heard about. Almost a mysterious place, but sustained by God. In even such places, God has given a habitat for the wild goats and for the rock badgers. God's sustenance of creation covers everything from the lowest points of the ocean to the heights of the mountains and from the smallest of microscopic organisms to the largest galaxies in the distant reaches of the sky. Earlier this year, a report went out that in a new exploration area on the floor of the Pacific between Mexico and Hawaii, they had discovered some new species of sea creatures. We think we know this world and the extent of God's creation. It wasn't just five or ten new species. They found 5,000 new species in the depths of the ocean. 
This is an ocean that is so near to us in comparison to the far reaches of the skies. To say that we understand God and all that he upholds in this natural world would be naive and prideful. So when we look at even those things that are close to us, let us bless the Lord, O our souls. We can be so tempted to misuse them. And we as humans do misuse them. For example, in our exploration of creation, that is uh, science, what we call science, it can very easily be misused to glorify man and to glorify his agendas. The intent of this discipline is to take one's mind back to the Creator. Romans 1 explains how man has worshipped the creation rather than Creator. Rather than the creator, with great condemnation, it says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. And this idea of oil to make the face shine can also be misused because we can very easily obsess over our image, our clothes, our makeup, our jewelry to make ourselves appear rich and put together to build ourselves up in the eyes of other people. Beware that idol of appearance. Or that wine to make the heart glad very easily can be misused for escape or self-indulgence. And many have seen those ill effects of alcoholism, withdrawal, reckless spending, destroyed families. Beware that temptation to serve the idol of alcohol. Or bread even to strengthen a man's heart can be misused as gluttony or a a lack of self-discipline or chasing a feeling of fullness or easing that fear of scarcity. Even food is to be enjoyed to point us to the Creator who gives us all good things. Let's beware even that idol of food. C.S. Lewis says things in very beautiful poetic ways, so I'll quote him again. He says, One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. What that means is that when we see the sunbeam, when we see the creation, we trace it back to the creator. And we say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Let us give glory to God and enjoy him, not the creation, forever. We enjoy the creation, not for its sake, but for the sake of enjoying and glorifying our God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And as God not only gives life and abundant life and abundant life to great extents that we can't even comprehend, he also gives us life abundant in Christ. He invites poor, miserable sinners like you and me to come as those who are rich with a sheen upon our heads to gladden our hearts with the wine of his blood and to strengthen our hearts with the bread of Christ's body. He gives us life, not just so that we barely survive, but so that we have life eternal and life abundant. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And when we get so bogged down in the creation, we miss the abundance of life that is lived with the creator. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now flip back a page to Psalm 103. 
as I give an example of this worship once again. Psalm 103, the first few verses read this way. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Bless the Lord, O my soul, for all your gifts of life and life abundant. And lastly, God upholds life. We've seen him as the God of light. We've seen the place that he has created for life. We've seen that he gives life and life abundant. And now we look at how God upholds life. See this in verses 19 through 23 with the moon and the sun. This correlates with day four of creation. The main point is God upholds and sustains the regularity of the seasons and the days. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the changes of the months, the changes of the seasons throughout the year and the rhythms of the day. The sun knows it's time for setting. The sun has no control. God tells it when to rise and when to set and it knows it's time and it marks the day. And we see that nighttime is the time of work for, for some animals as they seek their prey, as they seek their food from God, we find in verse 21. But then the daytime is the time for humans to rise and to work. And this reminds us that even our work leads us to say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Work is not a curse. Work is not something that even came after the fall. In our work, we worship. It's easy to romanticize the old arts of blacksmithing or farming or woodworking as worshipful jobs, but so is the task of laundry and dishes, of spreadsheets and emails, of meetings and meetings. These two are worship. Yet even as work has its healthy rhythms from sun up to sundown for an agricultural world, from nine to five for some of us in a post-industrial world, if we work too much, though, we become what we call workaholics which means we then worship the creation of work rather than the giver of work. And we must remember then the goodness of rest from this work, the Sabbath that God has given us, the Sabbath that God took at the end of these days of creation that we are reading about. At the close of every day and for one day in seven every week, God has built in that rest that we might bless the Lord with it that we might intentionally set aside a whole day to enjoy all these benefits that we've seen in this psalm, to talk about them and to use them to give glory to the creator. God has built in rhythms that bring life and he has promised that as long as the earth remains, these rhythms will not cease. But one day these rhythms will cease as we know them. Yet something remains and it's our God. Our God who is more reliable than the rising of the sun, whose mercies will last beyond that last rising of the, the sun. God made the heavens and the earth, the seas and all that is in them, and he preserves them all. He is before all things. He is more foundational than all these rhythms. Life of one kind ceases when that sun stops rising, but life eternal will never cease because it depends on our God. So bless the Lord, O my soul, because he is a God who never changes, a God who sustains this life. And we will say, those famous words from Revelation 4, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. As regular and dependable as these seasons are, Jesus is more reliable. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And as the Father cannot deny himself, Jesus cannot deny himself. And so we rejoice in his acts of redemption and creation that we see in this psalm. And we also rejoice in the full revelation of his redemption. We rejoice in God's act of new creation in the hearts of his people. Jesus breathing the spirit into dead bones, giving life to the dead and softening hard hearts that all, all those who receive this life would stand and believe in that ultimate slaying of death and chaos because of Jesus' death and his resurrection. In Jesus, we find these acts of redemption filled with eternal power. In Jesus, we find these acts of victory over death complete. In Jesus, we find a secure line drawn around us, a place of life, eternal life, the kingdom of light into which he brings believers and no one can snatch us out of his hand. And we long for that day when the new heavens and the new earth are established and Christ reigns in all his glory. And we will see the intent behind every single element that we observe in this world. We will see that that intent was to give God praise as his creation. And that sea of chaos and death will be no more. And God himself will be the light of that place. And until then, your job and my job is to return our eyes to our God without ceasing. As we enjoy him through his creation, return to give him glory and to worship. So we say, bless the Lord, O my soul. I'll give you one more vision here from Revelation 5. John says, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That is Jesus Christ, the savior of sinners. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Let us join in that chorus with our voices and with our lives. Let's pray to him now. Gracious God, you are so good and give life abundant. We do not find life anywhere except in you, our God, and in Jesus, our Savior. Would you draw us near? Would we be people who take these gifts that you've given? Would we not worship the creation? Would we worship you, the creator? We bless you, our Lord, with our souls and with our lives, by your spirit in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.